This is Graham Kissling Burry, and today I'm talking about setting the record straight on Drink the Kool-Aid. This came from a blog that I wrote back on June 13th, 2010 for the Albany Democrat Herald and Corvallis Gazette Times. I drank lots of Kool-Aid when I was a kid, and two weeks ago I got reacquainted with it. During a weekend work party to spruce up Camp White Branch along the Mackenzie Pass Highway, cherry-flavored Kool-Aid was served two days at lunch. I had four glasses of the stuff. It really quenched my thirst. To me, Kool-Aid evokes thoughts of summer days, picnics, and church potlucks. Unfortunately, the flavored drink mix is wrongfully linked to a dark November day in 1978 and the worst murder-suicide in modern history. That was the day when the Reverend Jim Jones led 912 of his People's Temple followers to their deaths in the Guiana jungle settlement that bore his name, Jonestown. All but two died from the poison drink they swallowed or were forced to swallow. One of them was my sister Sharon, who was 22 when she died there. I always cringe when I hear people <clears throat> use the now common expression, drink the Kool-Aid. According to Wikipedia, the phrase suggests that one has mindlessly adopted the dogma of a group or leader without fully understanding the ramifications or implications. Time Magazine writer Dan Fletcher wove it into his May 31st story about Facebook. Quote, the company isn't forcing its users to drink the Kool-Aid, he wrote. It's just serving up nice cold glasses and we're gulping them down. What bothers me most is the Kool-Aid wasn't in that deadly concoction at Jonestown. In Raven, the untold story of the Reverend Jim Jones and his people, author Tim Reiterman describes what actually was in it. Along one side of the building, on a wooden table, was a vat with the potion Grape Flavorade, a Kool-Aid-like drink that colored it purplish. Potassium cyanide was the poison. Liquid Valium and other drugs stood alongside it in vials. Kool-Aid is made by Kraft's Kraft Foods. I called the company recently to see how it deals with the drink the Kool-Aid phrase. My message was passed on to Bridget McConnell, Kraft's senior manager for beverages in the U.S., who called me from her Terrytown, New York office. McConnell also cringes when she hears the words, drink the Kool-Aid. The company, however, doesn't get defensive, nor does it send out requests for corrections. It's become ubiquitous, she said. The idea of trying to fight it is not worth it. Kool-Aid is still a popular drink, McConnell added. In consumers' minds, there's no connection between Jonestown and the beverage they enjoy. Many folks don't know about the where, it, uh, where that expression, drink the Kool-Aid, originated. Kool-Aid was invented by Edwin Perkins in 1927 in Hastings, Nebraska. An annual Kool-Aid Days festival is held on the second weekend in August in Hastings. The Kool-Aid Man mascot is also a popular character and even 
earned a star on the Madison Avenue advertising walk of fame. Everywhere we go, kids love him, McConnell said. Last month, while visiting relatives in the, on the San Francisco Peninsula, my mother and I drove to Alta Mesa Memorial Park Cemetery in Palo Alto. Grass had grown over portions of my dad's grave marker, so I cleaned it up. Less than a foot away is my sister's grave. I stood over it for a minute and had the thought I've always had when viewing it. She shouldn't be dead. I can't change what happened at Jonestown or the fact that a grave marker at Alta Mesa bears the name Sharon Kisslingbury. For the rest of my life, however, I can do something about the bad rap the Kool-Aid continues to get. Whenever I see or hear the words, drink the Kool-Aid, I will politely set the record straight. This is Graham Kisslingbury. I haven't backpacked in years, but today I'm going to read from a backpacking story I wrote back on September 4th, 1989. And this is uh, is for my... Friend and former Democrat Herald colleague, Tony Overman, who recently cracked 19 ribs and is recovering at home in Olympia, Washington. This is called Majesty or Misery. I couldn't wait to put on my boots. After 36 hours of lightning, thunder, and heavy rain, blue sky finally prevailed over Lake Tahoe on Wednesday morning, August 9th. No more cabin fever. It was time to go backpacking. My cousin Kurt Nielsen was asleep, so I packed his backpack and mine. Then I phoned my Democrat Herald colleague, Tony Overman, who was staying with a buddy 20 miles away at State Line, Nevada. Tony needed some persuasion. Why, he wondered, should a good casino day be wasted on a hike in the desolation wilderness area where bears rain and who knows what else might be ready to greet us? Tony, it's a beautiful day. No rain in the forecast, I assured him. I've never seen a bear in Desolation Valley. And there's a bonus. No poison oak or rattlesnakes. Okay, I'll be over by 10, he said. I've enjoyed backpacking since 1969. For Tony and Kurt, this was the first time out. And I wanted, to, I wanted it to be a memorable trip for them. Our destination, Desolation Valley, is a pristine wilderness area just over the ridge of mountains on the southwest side of Lake Tahoe. Instead of opting for the heavily traveled Desolation Valley Trail from Meeks Bay, I selected a route with no trail. We would bushwhack west from Highway 89 to Rubicon Peak, then hike down to Stony Ridge Lake and camp there for the night. I took the same route with my friend Mark McGinn in 1979 when when I was Kurt's age, 18. According to my memory, it took three and a half to four hours to get from the highway at 6,228 feet to Rubicon Peak at 9,183 feet. My memory, we soon found out, was failing. About 11.15, just before my wife dropped, dropped us off, Along the highway, Kurt whispered to Tony, there's still time to turn around. They still wish they had. 
For the first 45 minutes, we tromped through Manzanita, a prickly shrub that Kurt aptly dubbed Satan's Bush. I told my fellow hikers that some rugged outdoor folks have used Manzanita leaves to make a remarkably effective laxative tea. Oh, that's really something to look forward to, Tony said. I just want to get out of this stuff. The Manzanita soon gave way to a forest of pine and cedar. After hiking southwest a mile and a half or so along the vague semblance of a trail, we followed a creek drainage up and up and up. As the terrain got steeper and rockier, and as three hours became five, I received a barrage of verbal abuse. You keep saying it's just beyond those trees, Tony noted. It's never going to end, you liar. You are the world's worst manipulator, Kurt chirped in. We're doing this for your personal satisfaction and nothing else. In between the taunts, we kept our minds off the misery at hand by talking about such compelling subjects as Old Yeller, the Regis Philbin Show, and Disco. Kurt and Tony are looking forward to the 20th anniversary reunion of KC and the Sunshine Band in the mid-1990s. At 5 p.m., Rubicon Peak thankfully appeared through the towering trees. Kurt, however, was in no mood to exult. Don't expect me to say I'm glad I've done it when we're on top, he said. I'm not. I trudged on, determined not to let these whiners spoil one of the most magnificent views in California. At 6 p.m., two and a half hours later than my predicted time, we sat atop the peak, taking in a breathtaking panorama. All of Lake Tahoe, with the exception of Emerald Bay, glistened to the east. Seven Desolation Valley lakes and the Meeks Creek drainage could be seen to the west. It's an all right view, but it wasn't worth the hike, Tony said. I could drive 15 miles out of Sweet Home and have the same view. Don't give me that, I retorted, almost ready to boot him off the peak. It's a spectacular view. We lounged on the craggy rock for 15 minutes, then spent the better part of an hour beating it down to Stony Ridge Lake. After setting up the tent and devouring freeze-dried beef stroganoff, we were ready to pass out for the night. Stony Ridge Lake is along the Pacific Crest Trail, which extends from Canada to Mexico. We followed a few miles of it the next morning, then veered northeast onto the five-mile downhill trail to Meeks Bay. Tony, an excellent hiker for a guy who supposedly hates hiking, kept his eyes on the trail the whole way. I love nature, but I don't think it's worth the physical abuse just to see the scenery, he said. I can see this in Oregon. No, you can't, I retorted. I challenge you to point out a Douglas fir in this pine forest. That doesn't matter, he said. It all looks the same. And besides, my idea of majesty right now is a Big Mac. Along the trail, we briefly stopped to talk to several veteran backpackers. They were somewhat shocked to learn that I had led the two novices over Rubicon Peak. An ophthalmologist from Berkeley suggested that I had sadistic tendencies. Another guy called me a name that can't be printed in a family newspaper. Okay, I confess, it was a little rough. Feeling a twinge of guilt, I bought hamburgers, fries, and Cokes for all three of us 
after we reached Meeks Bay Resort. As we munched, we could see a distant Rubicon peak through the trees. Are you guys, uh, will you guys ever backpack again, I asked. Are you kidding? Kurt said, never, Tony vowed. <laughs>